James is very spontaneous. Okay, I like that. He's a yeah. Uh, he, he steps into the flow state and just lets it lets yeah. it all out. Spongemius. I like yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> but that's what's like always it. happened before now. Uh huh. Okay. What occurs this evening remains to be seen. Yeah, <laughs> it's going to be a trip. I'll tell you that. Mm. Very good. Listening to the Authenticity Show, where you get to eavesdrop on great conversations about health, creativity, and the quest for excellence. Your hosts are Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. Our guest today is James Tripp. James Tripp is an internationally recognized and respected hypnotist, personal coach, and teacher. Coming from a diverse background, including philosophy, music, martial arts, movement culture, and NLP, James is also the developer of the critically acclaimed Hypnosis Without Trance approach to hypnosis. Now this conversation gets deep, folks. It was a real pleasure having James on the show, and I hope you get as much out of it as we did. So here we are. Authenticity Show with the illustrious James Tripp. Hello. Hello. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure being here. All right, James. Good, okay. good to meet you. I feel like I've known you for a long time, but we just met like minutes ago. Yeah, it really. happens. It happens. Yeah. I think you already cast a spell on me or something. What is, I feel I have, like I've known you for years. I have the YouTube channel. So people come up and they say, hey, it feels like I really know you. Yeah. Except recently I have no thoughts. Almost everybody said, oh, wow, you're really tall. Because apparently I look like a little fella on the on the videos. Oh, okay, so, you're so. only two inches tall yeah. on my phone anyway. That's what happens. They yeah. go, they they think I'm literally that size. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How did he fit inside that phone? Yeah, yeah. So I think my that's what my dog thinks every time she sees other dogs on the on the screen. How do they fit inside that thing? Hmm. I was happy to know that you're not a two dimensional character. No, no. I'm at least three dimensional. You are, but you are a character more. though. You definitely are. You not only teach about hypnosis and things like that, but you have a background in mentalism, right? I do, yes. I'm a recovering mentalist. <laughs> um, yeah, that was, that was a huge thing for me. I got into mentalism and hypnosis around about the same time, pretty much the same time, uh, and I pursued the study of both in parallel. Hypnosis, NLP. Whenever I talk about hypnosis, uh, I actually mean NLP as well. Okay. Because to me, there's no differentiation. They're all in the mix. They're all the kind of same, the same kind of stuff. Okay. Uh, so I've always kind of studied them in parallel. They've always informed each other. Uh, but that started around the same time as, as the mentalism. Yeah. Could you describe the difference between mentalism and hypnosis? Like, well, you know, mentalism is a performance art, and that's something which I think a lot of people miss because. Back in 2010, I did the Change Phenomena Conference in London, and somebody asked me, what is mentalism? And it was a very flippant answer I gave. But what I said was, uh, mentalism's like magic, only you pretend it's real. <laughs> and it was a flippant throwaway answer. But actually, the more I reflect upon that, the more I think it is largely true. It is like magic, only that you pretend it's real. 
Um, so a lot of the things that are going on with mentalists are the same things that are going on with magicians. It's just they're pretending it's real. They really have these powers and they really have these skills. However, looking at mentalism as, a, as an art form, I see it as a continuum. There's mechanical mentalism on one end and there's psychological mentalism on the other end. Uh, and on the psychological mentalism end, you're going to get things like hypnosis and these sorts of uh, things, uh, cold reading skills, these kind of things, which are purely psychologically based stuff. On the mechanical end, you get the same kinds of mechanisms you get at play in a lot of magic. But the interesting thing about mentalism is how those things can blend. So a good mentalist is never doing purely uh, mechanical stuff. A good magician's never doing purely mechanical stuff. There's a lot of psychology wrapped around it, a lot of suggestion, um, a lot of interesting principles to do with how the mind works, how perception works that are being played with. So it's kind of always interesting from that end. But the problem is, is the more purely psychological you become as a performer, the riskier the performance becomes because now you're dealing with reality with the unfolding chaos and uh, it may go this way and it may go that way it's the more exciting end of things absolutely unquestionably uh, but it is more risky and one of the things that I found is I had a deep interest in the psychological end but because I ended up becoming a professional I needed stuff that would be reliable so I ended up relying more and more and more upon mechanical stuff which is not why I got into mentalism mm -hmm. and I kind of suddenly one day realized that I had become a magician hmm. and I had no interest in being a magician I never started out wanting to be a magician I was interested in psychology and human beings how the brain works how the mind works how we can influence the, the direction of people's thoughts and this kind of thing so um, I got a lot from mentalism I learned a lot not just from the principles of mentalism but also the practice of mentalism but in the end uh, I had to part ways with hmm. it Although, although it has been calling me back recently because I'm thinking there's some things that could be done with mentalism that are significantly more interesting than the things that I was once doing and could actually work in a deeper way. You ever heard of a guy called Kenton Nepper? Oh, yeah. Here's the thing he posted. Is your magic and mentalism mm -hmm. more meaningful than creating foolish people? Right. And that's something, it was interesting that he put that up because I've been thinking a lot about this recently. And, um, and I think that was something else, another reason why I left Magic and Mentalism at the time. As much as I wanted it to be about something more than fooling people and therefore kind of creating foolish people. And I could kind of bury it in some clever frames. Underneath of it all, that was still what it was about. And I was never comfortable with that. I don't want to create foolish people. I don't want to fool people. Um, but if mentalism can be used in an interesting way to open up possibility for people, to really have them see deeper into something about the nature of, of reality rather than unreality. That's mm -hmm. what a lot of mentalism is about. It's about creating this unreality that people buy into. I would be interested in using mentalism to have people connect more deeply into the nature of reality or perception and this kind of thing. So I'm kind of feeling the draw to go back and, and play with some mentalism stuff. It sounds Again. a bit like a, like mystery performing in a way. Yeah. I in mean, capital M mystery almost. Right. I mean, I, I don't know necessarily what the, the, the 
the difference would be there. I know I used to be a member of the British Society of Mystery Performers, and all of those mystery performers were mentalists. So I've in from the UK side of things, um, I equate the two as being quite similar. Although you've got bizarre magic and that mm-hmm. kind of thing in the mix as well sure. with, with mystery performing. But yeah, there's you know there's there's something in it, and I think there's an there, what I would love to find is a more organic way of working with it, of creating in the moment with it, rather than doing a performance. I do not like performing. Mm-hmm. I like to create in the moment. And that would be the important thing for me if I ever got back into mentalism. Well, you're creating in the moment, but you're also creating a moment. Yes. Because, you know, if you're doing a mystery performance, I mean, think of um, uh, Eugene Berger's wonderful lesson that he teaches with the strings, where he burns the strings and he does that. that uh, do you know what I'm talking about? It's, I, know, I know Eugene Berger, but I don't know. Okay, he, on, on YouTube you can see right. a clip of him telling this wonderful story, and it's uh, poetic and it's meaningful and... And then it has this sort of illusion that that's that plays out in the description. Yeah, and it's quite beautiful because um, not only is it well performed because he's an amazing or was an amazing performer, but mm. um, his voice, his resonance, and uh, the ultimate feel that you get from it is just a wow feeling. Right. That mystery of you know, and in that wow moment, I feel like there's an opportunity to learn something mm. that is beyond the words, or maybe the point the words are pointing at it, but you get nudged in the direction of um, opening up to a mystery, opening up mm. to a deeper lesson that's being conveyed. Yeah, I, like I mean, that, that, that would be an interesting thing for me. But I love things that can point people in a direction and say, you know, look over here. Mm-hmm. What might you find here? Uh, and have that be a genuinely enriching direction to look in rather than one that somehow serves the ego of the performer. And that's one of the problems, I think, with the world of mentalism magic is much of it's there to serve the ego of the performer right rather than to really create something powerful and possibly even transformative for the spectator or the participant that's a more interesting direction could you use mentalism um sort of to amplify the reality of a situation sort of rather than creating a um a a so-called false situation but um, to maybe sort of use it as a magnifying glass, you know what I mean, to help people discover things that... Uh, I, I think you can help people yeah. discover things. I think you can certainly help to open people up to the idea that we live in the world uh, as we create it to be rather than as it is. You know, yeah. we, we live in yeah. the world as we experience it rather than as it is. For many years, I was a big Darren Brown fan, you know, Darren Mm -hmm. Brown. um, He's not as big here in the US as he is in the UK, uh, but I was a big Darren Brown fan for years, and I went to see his live show year on year for probably the first five years he was live touring. And then I kind of got Darren Browned out. I I really did. It reminded me of when I was a kid, I used to love Clive Barker, the novelist Clive Barker, Mm -hmm. and I read everything that Clive Barker wrote until I was sort of, gorged myself to the point of nausea (laughs) on Clive Barker and I couldn't read another word. I was like that with Darren Brown. Um, But then, yeah, earlier this year, I was going over to New York to run uh, training for Melissa Tears in her Center for Integrative Hypnosis. And my friend Brian Mahoney, who's in Boston, I don't know if you know Brian. Do you know Brian in Boston? Hypnotherapist from Boston. Um, Very good hypnotherapist from Boston. He said, hey, Darren Brown's doing his first U.S. live shows. Do you want to get a ticket? Do you want to go and see Darren Brown? I said, well, yeah, sure. 
And I was kind of thinking, yeah, Darren, yeah, that that'll be kind of interesting to see Darren, but really I'm still Darren'd out. Mm-hmm. I'm done with Darren. Um, but we went and saw this this show, and I was imagining it was going to be in this big theatre because I've only seen Darren in big theatres in in the UK. And we turn up at this tiny converted church theatre that's a converted church, really small. And I'm, I, oh, okay, this is going to be different. And we were not the first row, but the second row. Really intimate theatre. And Darren came out and did his thing. And it was absolutely marvellous. It was beautiful. It was perfect. It really was. I'd seen a lot of the stuff before because he had the luxury first US show of being able to take the best of Darren Brown for the last 10 plus years and, um, you know, and, and create this wonderful show. But Darren was different. He was different. He had a deeper, I mean, this is the authenticity right. show. He right. had a, an incredible, he was so much more human, so much more authentic. The whole framing of the whole piece was about narrative and how narrative shapes experience. And it was a wonderful frame to put everything in because that's exactly the kind of thing I'm talking about. That's for me is pointing to something really powerful, you know, really that can open people up to something that actually can make a huge difference in their life. Um, You know, which was different from the old frames he used to use, which were about, I have these skills to manipulate people through magic suggestion misdirection showmanship and all of this and it was it always used to be about Darren and, and what his ma- amazing skills could be but this was about something else it was about something beyond Darren um, and, and I, I think it was absolutely fantastic so wow. if, you, if you get the opportunity to see Darren Brown uh, you know if he ever comes over this side this side of the country then definitely check him out sounds good I started to dabble with magic tricks for a little while, you know, and uh, um, now those people that know me well know that I'm a little bit of a ham, right? Carlos knows that I'm a ham. A vegetarian um, ham. Yeah, a vegetarian ham. Um, so I don't mind getting up in front of people for the most part, you mm. know, but I noticed that every time I, I did magic tricks in front of people, I got incredibly nervous hmm. and I didn't understand why it made me so nervous. I thought, this is just bizarre i i don't normally i mean i would like my my hands would almost shake and i thought i don't behave like this when i'm performing in front of people why are magic tricks making me nervous mm. and carlos another dear friend of ours they both started to shake their heads like carlos is shaking his head right now mm-hmm. and, they, and they're like oh yeah we understand and they said you don't like to deceive people and i'm like that's it that's mm. why i got nervous when i did magic i didn't like to deceive people mm. well and it's interesting because we have a uh an episode of the authenticity show called sacred deceptions yeah and it's all about this topic yeah yeah and you know where it could potentially have value mm. for everyone mm. yeah and we talk about illusion magic shamanism you know in different different aspects of the sacred illusion initiation mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I'm okay with Capital that. M Mysteries. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's, it's an interesting area. Um, have you heard of a guy called Aaron Alexander? Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, I got introduced to Aaron Alexander, not in person. Pygmalion but effect. Yeah, Pygmalion so, effects. Yeah, it's a good one. Um, by somebody who came on a workshop I ran earlier in a year, a mentalist from Germany came over to a workshop I was running in Edinburgh. And obviously he's a mentalist. We got talking about mentalism. I haven't really been paying attention to what's been unfolding in that world for the last few years. And he said, have you heard of Aaron Alexander? And I'm like, no, I've not heard of Aaron Alexander. Um, so I checked out his stuff and um, that Pygmalion effects was, the effects were like, yeah, they're cool. But his thinking around them yeah. was very exciting yeah. to me. And yeah. I, I really, I thought, well, this, is, this has got some real gold in it. People look at things like psychic surgery and go, well, it's a trick. You know, it's a trick because of how the, the frame we put around mm-hmm. it, it's deception. But, you know, what if the deception is part of the real magic? You know, what right. if it's part of the mechanism of the real magic, something that can make a real difference? And that was, you know, that was, I, I think that's been stirring around in my brain. I mean, that was around about uh, March time that I got introduced to that. And that's been kind of floating around in my brain and maybe part of what's rekindling my interest towards, uh, towards mentalism. Uh, so yeah, that that's a point I can relate to, and that's something that I could feel okay about. Yeah, you know, okay. I could yeah. enjoy playing with. Isn't uh, Jason Silva the one who does the National Geographic show Brain Games? I don't. know. It's all about um, illusions, and um, it, it's a fun show because they talk about the science of the illusion, mm. and there's a part of it where you, as the audience, gets to try to figure out what's going on like you you have to decide which one of these is actually darker than the other or whatever it is you know and and then it goes and reveals later um what the answer is and why you're tricked by it and it's it's a pretty cool show um jason silva is one of those guys who talks a lot about flow and flow states and yeah. it's pretty amazing um you, you've actually sat you've heard oh, yeah. some oh, jason silva yeah. um rants i guess you could call them sure yeah. kind They're of inspired good. Good rants it does yeah. really good um but isn't it that a lot of the illusions that we uh, organically are creating with our own perception are necessary and without them we wouldn't function very well. So in a sense, it's the deception of, let's say, uh, the blind spots in our eyes that are filled Mm. in, and it's precisely because of the deception that the magic of our ability to see and not be confused by what we see works so well. Right, yeah, and on another level entirely, one of the things that I often teach in, in the kind of the more what I call personal alchemy stuff that mm-hmm. I do with people uh, is around the idea of ego and the functionality of ego. And by ego, I'm talking here about the kind of more Eastern use of the term rather than necessarily the Freudian sort of use of the term or the Jungian use of the term. But I always describe ego as being the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves mm. to make sense of ourselves in the world. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know the work of Antonio Damasio, mm. neuroscientist. Self comes to mind. Yeah, and um, several others. The feeling of what happens was what happens, uh, yeah. was well. That's the book that I read. That's my that's my exposure to Antonio Damasio. But he's got this idea about these different selves that we have, and you can actually look at them working through different modules in the brain, which I think are the proto self, the autobiographical self, and the core self. And the autobiographical self, 
autobiographical. It's the collection of narratives we hold about who we are, what's possible for us, what we can and cannot do, and all of this sort of thing. And and you get a lot of these Eastern traditions, which I value a lot, uh, and some Western traditions as well, things like the Three Principles, Byron Katie's work, uh, and from, from the Eastern stuff, Hinduism, Buddhism, this kind of thing, that contain these ideas of waking up from the illusion. Some people talk about transcending the ego. But you look at Damasio and what he's pointing out. So you, you get people who have got the kind of brain damage that means that their autobiographical self is no longer functioning. They're still alert and they're still awake and they can still eat a sandwich and they can still play piano if they could play piano before. But left to their own devices to look after themselves in the world, they're lost because they can't make any decisions about anything. They can't do anything because they don't have the narratives to make sense of themselves in the world anymore or the world around them. They cannot make sense of things. Mm. So they cannot make choices. They cannot bring themselves to bear upon the world in functional ways because they've lost the map. I mean, you know, Korzybski, the map is not the territory, right. but the map has value. So there's this idea people are trying to kind of transcend the ego. But the ego is a functional illusion. It, you know, it's, it, we can say it's an illusion, but it's a functional one. It serves a function. I think if we were to truly transcend it, we would be lost. And I think people can transcend their ego. I mentioned, I think, a hypno thoughts. You know, I used to dabble with uh, psychoactive substances in my, in my young days. And I had moments, experiences where uh, I believed that for a time I transcended my ego. I have nothing to say about this because there are no words that I could possibly use to describe those experiences. I couldn't live from that place. You know, so I think that there's a value in understanding illusion and the functionality. We deceive ourselves when we tell ourselves stories about who we are, but we must deceive ourselves in order to have these narratives to make sense of ourselves in the world so that we can bring ourselves to bear upon, upon the world. It's functional illusion. Yeah, And one of the things that I teach with my approach to what I tend to call personal alchemy is there's two sides to it, which I sometimes refer to. I shall use these terms in this context, the yin path and the yang path. You, you know I have an influence from um, Chinese internal martial arts and Taoism and yin-yang theory and this kind of thing. So the yin path is the path of waking up from illusions, seeing the nature of of the illusion that we live through, or at least waking up to the illusion, perhaps not waking up from it, but waking up to it. Is it inwardly focused? Is that I think, yeah, why you're saying it's, it's, it's seeing like this that I am experiencing is mind-made. 100% mm -hmm. of this experience is mind-made. This is not how it is. You know, I, I love that shortcut. I, I don't know if Korzybski ever said this, Alfred Korzybski, whatever you say it is, you're wrong. Right. I, I love that. You know, for me, that's that's the uh, the yin path, um, and it's 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 freeing, it's liberating because it means any kind of trance that might grab us, any kind of thought, idea, perception set that might grab us, we can disembed from it. We can wake up to it and free ourselves from the trance that it creates, and therefore access different choices. And that's a wonderful thing. Um, in the teachings from the three principles, they talk about thought being the creative principle. But what's interesting is they never teach anyone to create with it. Hmm. And for me, that's the yang path. The other side is once you get this 
is an illusion. Outwardly focused. Right. You can wake up to it. And if you were to transcend it, that illusion, that illusion itself, you may well do, you know, the Eckhart Tolle thing and just sit on a bench for two years because... With what a funny you, laugh. Yeah, what, what can you do? So, um, but on the flip side of it, there's the yang side. And I find this equally interesting. And, you, you know, the yang side of personality is what are the, the new illusions we are going to create? Because the illusions that we create, once we can bring consciousness into the equation, once we can bring our own volition in with regard to the illusions that we create, we can become self-authoring. We can utterly transform our patterns of engagement with the world in interesting and exciting ways. Not because we need to, but because we can. Mm. And, and it's interesting and it's fun and rewarding and all, all of these sorts of things. Um, so that for me is the kind of yang side of things, which starts to relate more to, I have a distinction between alchemy and magic. And for me, alchemy, the way I use the term is about internal transformation, transformation of self how we are being in the world, how we are seeing the world, how we are engaging with life from the inside out. Magic is about how we change stuff out there, the differences we make out there. Interesting. Hmm. Uh, and the two are often related. I think you can get people who are born magicians because they get raised into, you know, they've got the right parents, the right environment. They get unconsciously some of the secrets of making stuff happen easily out there in the world. But they have no idea how they're doing it. They're like unconscious um, magicians. They just have the right operating system to be able to do magic. And they just, hey, you know, it just stuff comes together. And then you get people who get programmed with a less than optimal operating system. And so they're not managing to get the interesting things happening in life that they would like to have happen. Things seem like a struggle they seem difficult, everything seems like a grind and nothing seems to be working out and all of that kind of thing. Um, but they too can become magicians. But there is a deeper path of personal alchemy that needs to be gone on because they didn't get lucky with the with with the, getting the appropriate operating system installed in the first place. All the environmental influences. Yeah. yeah. yeah they, what they, what they, you're saying reminds me a little bit of, of what uh, Alistair Crowley uh, would talk about magic versus mysticism. Right, right. You know, magic yeah. being the, you know, the art of causing change to, to happen in accordance with will, and mysticism being related to, um, you know, that inward inward focus of uh, connecting with the mysteries, right, the mystery, and yeah. getting a, tapped into to what it's all about, but not necessarily about changing the external world. Yeah. you just describe yourself as a, as a generative hypnotist yes can you talk a, a little bit about what that means for you and what does okay. it mean to be a generative hypnotist well really i mean that's i'm i'm, I'm gonna point the finger squarely at stephen gilligan um mm. for that piece of influence there is a generative intelligence that we are all blessed with this generative intelligence and it is generative because it generates it generates ways of perceiving ways of understanding, ways of being, ways of engaging with the world. We come into the world uh, with few reflexes, We've got a grasp reflex, a suckle reflex. What we don't have is any real conceptual frameworks in place for making sense of things. 
And so we're pretty much powerless. But by the time we're adults, well, we can go out into the world and we can, we can put our hands on things and move things about and make things happen and create some revenue flow and, and these sorts of things coming through. And we built that. We built that capacity. Okay, you know, we weren't consciously building it, but we participated in the creation of that. There is this generative intelligence that we are all imbued with that creates ways of understanding, ways of being, ways of engaging. And we, my sincere belief is we always have this. It's not something which switches off once people get through their formative years, quote unquote. You know, um, we always have this. So when I'm working with a client, we are working within the context of this generative intelligence. Um, it is going to be generating differences, new possibilities, um, and specifically differences that make differences to reference Gregory Bateson's line, the difference that makes the difference. Uh, so I'm looking for differences that make differences. And I'm aware that the client that I'm working with has the capacity to manifest those. And I let clients know that really early on when I'm working with them. I will say, okay, so you've you, you got this thing. You, you want to change this. And even though we've only just met, there is something I can tell you absolutely with complete certainty. And that is that you can change your experience around this entirely and the results that you're getting entirely. And then I will say to them, and I'm saying this not because I know you deeply, we've only just met. I know this because you're a human being. And that is the nature of human beings, part of the nature. It is a fundamental part of what makes us who we are and what we are. This generative intelligence that can learn, that can take care of our growth, our development, our change, and it is always there. And people may have switched it off. They may not have been using it for a while, or at least not using it anything like to its, its full capacity, but it's there. And I always say to the client, and I know you think that you're a special case of fucked up. <laughs> and, and I say this to almost every client, and every single one nods at that point emphatically. Mm -hmm. right? I know you think you're a special case of fucked up. I know that you think that you can't change this or this is going to be especially hard for you or whatever. I get that. Everybody thinks that. And it's, it's, it's completely human. I understand why. But it isn't true. So this is something I open up for people. And, it's, and it sits inside of this idea of this generative intelligence. So for me, generative is summing up this idea. We're going to make differences. We're going to make differences that are going to make differences. We're going to make differences in that session, not after 10 sessions, not in a year's time. Things will change in that session. Uh, and that's whether I'm doing issue-specific change or coaching. And they will change in a way that the client will witness the change. They will go, well, yeah, that's really different. Um, so that's, you know, that's the thing around, this is why I call myself a generative hypnotist. Um, there's also something else I like about the term generative because I think it honors the systemic nature of things. Mm -hmm. And that's an important thing for me. I, I look at things a lot in terms of systems and emergence. Uh, I look at things in terms of chaos and complexity. I do not believe that I can control anything that's going to happen for the client or even anything that's going to happen for me. You know, we're, we're showing up in the same space. We are participating in an unfolding of difference 
and the variables go beyond my conscious uh, reckoning and the client's conscious reckoning. So we're going to kind of dance a dance with chaos and capture the difference that emerges from that. So generativity is something that, that has a systemic feel or sense to me. So it's another reason I, I like that term. But it comes from Stephen Gilligan. listening to The Authenticity Show, where you get to eavesdrop on great conversations about health, creativity, and the quest for excellence. Your hosts are Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. Up next, Carlos and Satch go deeper down the rabbit hole with James Tripp, exploring ideas from martial arts, acupuncture, personal alchemy, and a deeper understanding of the meaning of trance. Stay tuned. James, you, you know, you're talking about generative changes and generative hypnosis. And um, in one of the classes that you taught at Hypnothoughts, mm. you talked about resilience. Mm. And that I really love that because um, rather than treating hypnosis and change work and LP processes as something to um, alleviate the pain and just go into you know a bliss state of some kind, you were talking about bringing out a quality in the person that allows them to make choices, to adapt, to become the kind of person who could look at the problem differently, who mm. could respond to the problem differently. And it sounds a lot like that's connected to this idea of generative change, generative hypnosis. Mm. Uh, absolutely. And, and I think that's is one of the interesting things. I do issue specific change work. I do ongoing developmental coaching and they're sort of different things and they're sort of the same thing um at the same time i'm gonna loop back to to loops that were opened earlier before this recorded conversation started <laughs> um you mentioned bruce francis yeah so bruce francis i don't know if you ever read his book the power of internal martial arts yeah i love that book i really do i love what i love about it i love it for the same reason i love uh, robert smith's Chinese boxing methods and masters or masters and methods. Masters and methods, yeah. Yeah, masters and methods. Um, because I, I love the little kind of vignettes about training with these different masters. And he talks about his final, uh, his final Sifu. Uh, Lu Hongbin. Yeah. I was going to say Master Liu because I couldn't, oh, yeah. I couldn't remember the rest. Good uh, enough. But yeah, and I, I remember him saying that he's he was like a Wu-style guy and a, and a Bagua guy and that he would practice Bagua Shang until he found his energy becoming too hard. And then he would practice Wu style Taiji Chuan until he found his energy becoming too soft. But with every, every kind of iteration, the hardness got folded into the softness and the softness got folded into the hardness. And I love that idea that kind of folding in. I tend to oscillate. So I'll spend periods of time where I do hardly any issue specific change work and I do only ongoing developmental coaching stuff. And I get a lot from doing that. And then suddenly I need to shift. I need to shift back to doing the issue specific stuff. Mm. You know, really nailing down, getting really precise about this thing. Um, and I'll 
kind of really get into that and do that for a bit. But every time I do one or the other, it's sort of like there's things that I learn and I get from that that fold back into the, into the opposite end of things. What this means is when I'm doing issue-specific change work, which is still what I call it, issue-specific change work, I'm always thinking generatively. I'm always thinking, who will this person be being when they leave here that is different from who they were being and how they were being before? Not just, do they now no longer bite their fingernails versus did they bite their fingernails? You know, what, what else? What else are they seeing? What else are they connecting with in terms of their potential to, you know, live a rich life and this kind of thing? And I'm not necessarily kind of hammering a lot of extra stuff in on top of the specific bit of change work, but it's the context that's there. And I think because the context is there, people tend to get a lot of shifts in that direction. Because the thing is, anyone who's listening to this who is a quote-unquote hypnotist, well, everyone's a hypnotist. Because we're always speaking from where we are at, from what we are experiencing, from the sense we are making of the world in the moment. We cannot speak from anywhere else. We speak from the reality tunnel that we're in. And as we speak from that reality tunnel, if we're effective in communicating, we kind of draw people into the reality tunnel. That's mm -hmm. how, it, how it works. So we're all hypnotists in this respect. So for myself, when, I, when I'm in this place of, of looking and seeing this client and thinking, you know, what is it that's possible for you on every level? You know, how, how much richness can potentially open for you in life? That, that's the place I'm in. That's the place I speak from without having to be strategic about it or tactical about it. I'm just going to speak from that place. And, and I think it kind of conveys, it comes across, it, 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 it draws people into that. So um, I think I get a lot more kind of bang for my buck, so to speak, change work-wise, than I might do if I just focused on this specific uh, issue, if that makes sense. It does. Um, what's interesting to me is that you stay vulnerable in your process with clients. Mm. You stay in a state of uh, curiosity and exploration as you're doing it, instead of defaulting to the technique that you know you could do really well and perform really well. Um, not saying that you don't uh, do that, everyone does, mm. but you're not coming from that place all the time. It's like you're mm. staying in this place of possibility mm. where Anything could happen and you're trusting your own intelligence to adapt and be sensitive and, you know, stay uh, in sensory acuity and, and, and um, adapt. Mm. And I think that my understanding of self-development and, and aiming to uh, become more masterful in myself, that's exactly the kind of place that we need to come from in order to better ourselves and to um, hone our craft and become more capable of of adapting to everything that comes and and not everyone does that i see a lot of very polished uh strong egos in mm. the teaching environment and in the nlp and hypnosis environment but very few are remaining in that um again naked authenticity the naked vulnerability uh that creative inspired curious open space mm. where this may not be a cookie cutter situation, but I'm going to do this in front of you, in front of a crowd of people even, and I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how this is going to go. And I love that. 
that's very inspiring to see. Mm. And and I think it's it's kind of where it's at. I think you've got to be able to sit. For me, I I sit with a client and I see what's about to unfold as a co-creation, 100% between me and them. If I show up going, yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do with you. Yeah. I'm probably going to go off course pretty quickly unless I'm willing to let go of that. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with coming up, with walking into a session with a few ideas about what we might do. Sure. Um, but if I get attached to trying to drive any of those through, I'm lost. I'm not going to do good work. There is a co-creation. Uh, we are both present. And this idea of generative intelligence, their generative intelligence is present. My generative intelligence is present. And in a sense, because I tend to think in terms of systems, because we are present and connected, there is an emergence of a greater intelligence yet that goes beyond anything that we could personally track consciously. So being able to kind of be with that and get into that, one of the principles I teach a lot is get into versus get through. Get into versus get through? Get into versus get through. Gotcha. A lot of the time people are trying to get through something. They're trying to get through a change work process. They're trying to get through any process. They're trying to get from here to there. Uh, my goal is to get there, so I want to get through all these steps to get there as quickly as possible. Uh, and you even see it in the way things are coded in, in NLP. We've got the six-step reframe. We've got six steps to get through. Uh, and so people get on with getting through the steps. And I think all the time people are in the get-through zone, they miss the real power because if we just look at it at the level of hypnosis, hypnosis is about this moment and this experience and profound absorption in this moment and this experience, whatever this experience might be. It might be, you know, a, a piece of hypnotic phenomena, like a hand stick. But the point is a profound absorption in this experience, which is happening in this moment. But people are always trying to rush through. You know, you see hypnotists, they're trying to get through the induction so they can then get through the deepeners. And mm -hmm. when they get through the deepeners, then they can get through the change work pattern and when they get through they can get through to the wake up at the end they can get through the session and hopefully they've got through the change i think that leads people to being in the wrong place i think if you can just really be present with your client be paying attention be open to what's coming through be able to work with what's coming through uh that's when you can kind of get really cool stuff happening which goes beyond any kind of technique that you might come into the session with mm. thinking yeah this would be a good one to use that's beautifully said um when you say you know the idea of getting through something is very future focused yeah. you can't be in the present moment because you're Absolutely. talking about this this future state that you're going to be in which might only be several seconds from now but it's still in the future mm. and i love that idea of of getting into something mm. you know uh, it does it does keep you presently attending you know mm. that's, that's nice one of the themes that I'm I'm hearing here is um, sort of the beauty and the elegance and the the transformation that can occur when whatever it is that we do in our profession, we do it with a focus on more expansiveness. Uh, I, I really enjoyed what you said about uh, the difference between thinking about you know what technique you're going to use on somebody versus just being there and seeing where this goes and, and you know essentially being absorbed in, in who they are in that moment. Mm. Um, it's interesting. Uh, I have the same experience as an acupuncturist. There are times when a client might come in and I start to get very mechanical. 
You know, um, what points am I supposed to use for this? Mm. What herbal prescriptions do the books say you mm. should use for this? Um, and that usually happens when I'm looking at the condition that I'm treating as the condition rather than the person, mm. you know, um, what am I going to do for this tennis elbow or this migraine headache? Whereas it's more transformative to say, Hmm, how are we going to, um, harmonize this grandmother's body so that these migraines can dissolve? Mm. or vanish, you know, and then it's more collaborative, mm. you know, in, in taking that idea, you know, um, it's interesting, even when you just use different terms to describe the people that you're serving, you know, mm. um, it's very different to treat a patient versus to have a client. I mean, mm. it's, it's very different. You know, a patient is somebody that you do something to, yeah. you know, a client is somebody that you're working with. Mm. A consumer is somebody you're serving. Mm. You know, I, I think it's worth just thinking about, you know, who, who is this person that I'm providing a service for? Yeah. Is it a patient? Is it a client? Is it a, is it my mom? Mm. You know, it's different. Or along the same vein, uh, treating the person versus treating the disease. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Mm. It's very different to treat back pain in a college student versus treating back pain in a new mother who has a baby. Mm-hmm. You know, these are two completely different situations and, and the identity of the person that you're treating it matters so much mm. in, in, in what you're doing for them and what service you can provide and yeah. you know, how you approach them and what you say and what you don't say and, right, right. and all that sort of thing. I mean, and for me, that's a huge thing, partly because I, I tend to think about things in terms of trances or reality tunnels or the experience that we are you know, shaping and creating in the moment for ourselves because we're going to engage with the client through the experience that we are in in the moment so how we self-hypnotize counts and how we self-hypnotize well we're self-hypnotizing all the time if you refer to this patient that has that framing has a hypnotic effect it will put you into a particular this is the way i see it put you into a particular trance about this person a client will put you into a different trance about this person and i and i love that you're pointing that out because i think this is something that i I constantly want to get people to to see um is how they i mean practitioners of hypnosis i train hypnotists and the thing that they're often obsessed about is like how they're hypnotizing the other person how they're using their words to shift the other person's reality a lot of people aren't even at that level necessarily but you know, if they're getting somewhere, they're like, how am I using my words to influence this person? But what are the concepts you're bringing to bear in the, in the moment that are shaping your own trances? Because you're always going to hypnotize, quote unquote, from a particular trance state yourself. Mm-hmm. So how you are making sense of the moment, the person, is fundamentally important. The concepts that you're bringing to bear upon that moment... Um, you know, they're, they're going to be game changers. They're, 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 that's where the real kind of leverage is. So it comes back to this idea again about sort of magic and alchemy. Right. Because the alchemy is the, the transformation of your own trances to create highly functional trances, to create modes of engagement in, the, in terms of doing change work. How are you going to engage with this client? You know, where is it going to come from? You, you, this is where the real power is for hypnotists. This is the stuff that I would really love to be teaching. Mm -hmm. 
some people say is philosophical and they mean that as a kind of dismissal mm. as in it's not practical but so far as I'm concerned philosophy is practical uh, I think this is important stuff when we're looking at philosophy we're looking at the way we're understanding things the way we're making sense of things and the way we understand things the way we make sense of things that shapes how we show up how we engage right right you know it shapes our reality tunnels yeah echo this idea of um, doing something to change yourself and how important that is in a in, in a particular discipline or a practice mm. um, I was heavily influenced by something that one of my acupuncture teachers said years ago he uh, shared that there's an ancient acupuncture textbook that told you how you're supposed to be thinking and behaving when you treat somebody ah. and hmm. what he shared was when you treat a patient, you should stand as though you're standing on the edge of a cliff. And when you reach out and touch the needle, you should do it as cautiously as though you're grabbing the tail of a tiger. And that little wow. saying right there <laughs> just filled me with, with um, awareness mm. and the right mindset. I mean, I get goosebumps now just thinking about it again. Mm. And every now and again, I remind myself, oh, figure out who you are and what you're supposed to be doing and what mindset you're supposed to be in before you start treating this person. Yeah. You know, am I as aware as though I'm standing on the edge of the cliff? Well, I wasn't, oh, but now I am, hmm. you know, um, am I going to grab that needle? Like it's the tail of a tiger. Like really, am I going to embody that for a moment? Now I'm really noticing and I'm feeling things. I'm picking up on subtleties of the situation that I would have missed. Otherwise, um, it helps me be a better practitioner. So, um, I love the idea that that's what you really want to teach to hypnotists, you know, is, is, is more of a mindset, you know, um, uh, I know from, yeah. from my personal experience, it, it transformed the way I treated forever. Just having one simple little saying. Yeah. Know? Well, James, you you were talking about trances and that people are in all these different kinds of trances. And I think a lot of people who aren't familiar with the way you describe reality, um, they think, well, I'm not in a trance. They have this particular yeah. idea of what a trance is. Yeah. And you said something earlier that, that I was going to reflect back to you and, and see what you thought of it. Um, you, you said that how you're making sense of reality. Mm. And isn't that a trance, right? How, you make, how you're making sense of this moment is what you're referring to when you say the everyday trance. The trance right. that you're in is how you're making sense of reality yep. in that moment. It, it's, it's how you're experiencing things right now. Um, you know, that, that's, that for me is 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 a is a trance and the way i often describe it is is any state of being from which automated behaviors emerge so you're nodding right now as i say that yeah and you didn't think consciously i think it's time to nod right <laughs> you just nodded because that nod emerged from the experience and the sense you are making in the moment of all that is this moment right you know, and, and it's this idea that we are never experiencing the world as it is, only as we are experiencing it in this moment. Hypnotists often think of trance as being a particular state that renders people somehow uniquely open to suggestion. Um, 
the whole kind of hypnosis without trance thing, which is something that I'm well known for here. I'm using the term trance. And on the other hand, I have this website called hypnosis without trance. <laughs> um, well, you have to know what it is. You're first, such a hypocrite. Get rid of it, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, in that, what I, what I say is this particular special state of trance that you put someone in and then deepen them and it renders them particularly open to suggestion mm. is a myth. And instead I say that's not how hypnosis works. And I introduce a model called the hypnotic loop. And back when I was first teaching this stuff, I'd refer to loops. And now I use the term trances to mean loops. And the reason I use the term trances is because it's more poetic and more evocative. Mm -hmm. And I'm a hypnotist, so you know I'm going to use more poetic, more evocative language. But the the real sense is that we are never experiencing this moment as it is, only as we are experiencing it. And that experience is the trance. And certain behaviors will emerge from that. And it's amazing how often I play around with people um, all the time to demonstrate to them that their perception that they are choosing their actions is often misguided. Um, I often do a, yeah. a, a, an arm catalepsy for this. I'll just say, I'm going to borrow that hand and I'll set up an arm catalepsy. And they're there staring at their hand and it's out in front of them. And I will ask them, now, did you choose to put your hand out there? Or did you want to put your hand out there? And they go, uh, yes. Or they go, uh, uh, no. And it doesn't really matter because they're trying to make sense after the fact mm -hmm. of what happened. What happened is just what happened. There was no decision-making that was conscious or anything. They, they just, it just happened. And then they have to make sense after the fact. They're in a trance. They're already in a trance. They're just in a following trance. Right. You know, um, you might have somebody who says, you know, every time my boss slams down the report I've handed on my desk, I just feel, uh, you know, that's the state they go into. And I, you know, I might say to them, so are you, are you, are you lucid at the time? No, I'm not lucid. I cannot speak as I wish to speak because their behaviors are hijacked by the trance. You know, our, tra our behaviors always come from how we are experiencing things and how we're making sense of things in the moment. So we live our lives through this series of trances. And, and I talk about trance repertoires. We have a repertoire of trances, like a comedian has a repertoire of jokes right. or a musician has a repertoire of, of uh, tunes they could play or maybe on a smaller level, a repertoire of riffs and hooks and licks and this kind of thing. So we live our life through these repertoires of trances. And those trances, that trance repertoire pretty much dictates the habitual results we're going to get in the world. So if you want to get different results in the world, there's only one way of doing it. Because if you try and drive different behaviors from the same trances, it just doesn't work, which is what most people try and do. Mm -hmm. right? And that's why they procrastinate and stuff like that. Because they I know what I should do. I'm just not doing it. Of course you're not. You know, so this is the thing. It's change the trances, change the results that you get. But that's the way I use the term uh, trance. And I, and I think about things in those terms when I'm doing change work. What is the specific trance that we're looking to change here? Yeah, I, I remember um, to that point uh, in the class that you gave on nonverbal communication. Yeah. Um, I laughed immediately when that gentleman tried to uh, describe his reasoning in retrospect after his behavior. Right. And you instantly cued in on that. You, you kind of looked at me and said, did you really? Are you sure about that? 
like kind of, you know, asking him to question whether or not he really did choose that consciously, or is he trying to make sense of it after the fact? Yeah. You know, it's, it's uncomfortable to think that you slipped into an unconscious behavior without being in control for a lot of people. It right. It feels uncomfortable. Right. Yeah. To recognize that you didn't intend to do that thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is a very interesting area, and this is where hypnosis gets particularly interesting for me, um, formal hypnosis. There's a, there's a frame that Anthony Jacquin introduced me to. When I first met Anthony, he was a full-on old-school trance myth hypnotist. Right. And I remember when I was first talking about the hypnosis without trance stuff, we had a lot of discussions about that, and he wasn't necessarily quite sold on it, but... Later on, he did his own research with, with Kev and came around to an approach that's more similar. Maybe you'd call it yeah. a cognitive behavioral approach or, or whatever it might be. Okay. And Anthony came up with this really great insight. And it was hypnosis is the art of turning doings into happenings. Hmm. And I, I really liked this frame. It's like if somebody's arm is lifting... They experience it as a happening, it's hypnotic. But the fact of the matter is, is they're lifting their arm. Right? right. So they're lifting their arm, but they're experiencing it as something that's happening to them. I thought that's really cool. And it really helped me out a lot with how I thought about hypnosis in a practical, pragmatic way. But across time, I've thought, is it really that? Or is it actually more the removal of the illusion of doing hmm. from what is happening. Because how much of what we do is actually consciously done? Right. Versus how much is just unfolding, you know, is just happening. Every single word. How many of your words have you carefully chosen this evening? Who knows? Who knows? And we're all speaking... Probably, if your experience is anything like mine, you don't know the next word that's coming out your mouth necessarily. So I, I do know what I've been aching to ask you, though. Yeah, <laughs> and it's related to this. Yeah, I would like to hear your opinion on free will, ah, uh, or the concept of it. Ah, uh, I'm going to look wistfully away into the distance. <laughs> free will. Yeah, you can wax poetic here. This yeah. Is well, I think the interesting thing about free will, um is it's, it's a kind of old term. It's a hackneyed term. Do you have that expression, hackneyed? Hackneyed? One? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I know there's sometimes differences uh, from different sides of the Atlantic, but it, it's a term that's been used and used and used and used and used again to the point where I don't really know, nobody ever bothers specifying what they mean by it because they just pull it out and go, what about free will? Um and everybody does this. It's just sort of part of the lexicon of our culture. I think that the idea, if free will means absolutely, completely free from any influence, then clearly the notion is utter, utter bullshit. Right. Um, so I would say, no, we don't have free will. But if we take this as a dual, dualistic perspective, therefore everything is determined or random. I don't think that's true either. And I think somewhere in the mix, we have some capacity to choose. I've had this discussion with many people. My friend, uh, John P. Morgan, who's up in Santa Monica, and is brilliant, and you really ought to get on your show. Um, 
well, I had this discussion with him a number of years ago, and he, he was coming up with all these kind of logical counters to free will. And I said, look, I, I get all of that. I get that. But logic only works within certain frames. And what mm -hmm. we're dealing with here is beyond any of the frames. But what it seems to me is I experience an I that can choose more primarily than I experience anything else. I'm not saying that makes it so, but I'm saying that it, it, look, if there's evidence for anything, there seems to be evidence for that on my own, you know, f through my own sensory evaluation. Right. So I may as well hang my damn hat on it because it seems to me that inside of everything there is a capacity to choose. And I'm aware that capacity to choose is not to choose freely because the choices I experience are always shaped by the trance that I'm in. And yet, somewhere in the mix... There is this entity, the I, that chooses, which actually resonates with the idea from Antonio Damasio we mentioned earlier of the core self, which essentially is the sense that I am mm -hmm. and the sense that I can, that I can act, that I have this, you know, some volition in the world. A few years ago, I hired a guy called Steve Chandler. I don't know if you know of Steve Chandler. Just by name. Okay. Mm -hmm. He's uh, written a number of books which are all good and all exactly the same, so far as I can tell. Um, uh, but great stuff, wonderful stuff. I love, I love Steve's stuff. And he was my coach for a year. And one of the concepts that Steve introduced me to was the concept of the eye that chooses. Hmm. The eye that chooses. One of Steve's teachings is stop identifying with your history, stop identifying with your habits, stop identifying with your behaviours and start identifying with the eye that chooses. Interesting. And maybe that's just another trance. Well, of course it's just another trance. You know, the trance of the eye that chooses. But it's a pretty powerful trance. listening to The Authenticity Show, where you get to eavesdrop on great conversations about health, creativity, and the quest for excellence. Your hosts are Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. Up next, Carlos and Satch get deeper and deeper with James Tripp, covering topics like adult developmental psychology, self-authoring through manipulating your own trances, and real-life magic don't want to miss this. Big influence on me is Robert Keegan. I don't know if you know Robert Keegan's work at all. Mm -hmm. He's a, an adult developmental psychologist um, who's written a couple of hugely impenetrable books. Uh, so I never recommend any of Robert Keegan's books to people, but I'm often recommending and have re recommended many times a very short book, which is available only on Kindle. I think it's about 99 pages and I love how concise it is. And it's beautifully written. It's called The Discerning Heart. The subtitle is The Developmental Psychology of Robert Keegan. It's by a guy called Philip M. Lewis. I, I think that book is brilliant for helping it tr transform how I saw the world. And he's an adult developmental psychologist. He's following on from people like Jean Piaget, mm -hmm. who's focusing on you know, the child stages of development in children. Keegan's view was, well, do we stop developing? 
And is there a pattern to the ongoing development that um, adults go through? So he's mapped out these different stages. There's five stages. And the way he's got it organized is, is to do with really basically becoming progressively richer in your ability to take perspectives. And not only take perspectives, but then take perspectives on your own perspectives. And people who are kind of lower down, they don't take perspectives at all. Well, they do. They have a single perspective, which they believe is how things are. They believe it's a fact. How I see things is how it is, is the place that a lot of people will operate on. And then people will go, hang on a second. There's, there's different ways of seeing things. This person sees it like that. That person sees And they start to get that we all kind of have a different way of seeing things and maybe different values. But underneath of it, there's still this quest for, but who's right? There's still a belief that, yeah, there's these perspectives, but there's a, there's the correct perspective somewhere and I must find it. Um, That's so alluring. Yeah. That, yeah. that idea that you yeah. could find the right one. Right. Mm -hmm. And so alluring. And, and the search at this level, this is like Keegan's stage three level, is that the correct perspective is out there somewhere and, and somebody somebody's got it. And, and when people are at Keegan stage three, they're often looking to others for guidance. There's a lot of external referencing going on because, oh, well, this person thinks this, but then oh, am I right to do this? Am I wrong? Mm -hmm. And they're looking to others to let them know whether they're right and wrong unconsciously all the time. Uh, but they get these different perspectives. The previous stage, stage two, is just like the way I see it is how it is. Um, it's possible that you're, president might be stage two um, <laughs> we, I, we we might not argue with that i i, I hope i'm not <laughs> opening up uh, a minefield there with that but so so i'll move on from that swiftly but stage three um is this idea that there's different perspectives but there's a correct one and i, I want to find it stage four is about self-authoring suddenly like ah hang on a second this is down to me to figure out how things are and yeah i can start to play more with um how i'm organizing things but there's still an idea that there's a way i've got to find my way to the mm. the right path mm -hmm. that there's there's a right path and i've got to find my way to it in the self-authoring level and then stage five keegan's stage five is called self-transforming where people go well, we can think about this in an infinite number of ways and we can experience this in an infinite number of ways and each one of them is going to open up a different set of choices and none of them is going to be all-encompassing and, you know, and it's this further sort of disembedding and a relationship with perspectives and each perspective being a, a sort of set of possibilities in and of itself and none of them being at all correct um and that's like the the kind of stage five place keegan reckons that in western society most people are stage three some leaning into stage four very few stage five uh, people but the interesting thing is once you start looking at it like this it certain things make a lot of sense because somebody who is at a stage two who is very much uh, well Everything is what it is. The way I see it is how it is. If you see things differently from me, you are either insane or a charlatan and a trickster who's trying to delude people. 
And that's how kind of like a, a stage two thinker uh, is going to see anyone who's a little bit more nuanced in their perspective taken, is a bit richer in their perspective taken. They're going to go, what on earth is this? It's obvious how things are. What are you talking about? You and your your big words and your your philosophy and all of that stuff, you know. The, so somebody at that level literally is not going to get, you know, somebody at another level, which is which is why uh, this Looks was... like we got ourselves a reader. Yeah, right. <laughs> you, you know, um, and uh, I mean, somebody at stage two could actually be phenomenally intelligent. They, they could be very, very intelligent. They could be able to, like, do advanced mathematics or... Mm-hmm or whatever, or be able to work stuff out like you're talking about, be able to do tangible things in the world incredibly well, understand, you know, complex bits of software and be able to pick them up and learn very, very well, um, but be at this stage two developmental level because it's not specifically about intelligence. And Keegan says that most people go through this phase and they transcend it around, uh, you know, their, their sort of mid-teens really and they'll go into stage three which is called the socialized mind often uh, because we now become aware there are other people and they have perspectives and they have opinions and how do we fit with that stage two who sees things as they are usually um, tends to view other people as suppliers to the self other people are pretty much there to meet my needs if I'm stage two you and I could be friends we could all be friends um, but if you were upset, the only reason I'd be upset that you were upset is because you might not want to be my friend and hang out and have fun anymore. Not because you might actually be upset, you know, because do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's a, this is a sort of different level of processing. Right. Yeah. It's, it's like, um, sort of like in child development, the egocentric stage. Yeah. You just can't see somebody else's perspective very well. Yeah. You know? Which reminds me by the way, um, of, uh, one of my wife's, uh, cousins, Hmm. We always tease him because when he was a little boy, he said, hey, everybody, you want to see the lights go out? And he covered his eyes real quick. Hmm. And everybody laughs at that now <laughs> right. because he egocentric stage. He just couldn't see other people's perspectives. It's yeah. funny. It's cute. Yeah. So my, my daughter's, uh, my youngest daughter, this kind of came up the other day. She said something that was kind of like not very tactful to her sister. And I said, so why might you want to make a different choice about, you know, uh, and she said, because then Lois wouldn't be upset. I said, yeah, and, and why might that be a good thing? She said, well, if Lois is upset, she won't want to be my friend anymore. She won't <laughs> want to play with me. And it's like, that's, that's, that's the, I'm like, right, there, there it is. I yeah. can see the sort of level. You know, she's nine, so I'm not going to demand anything more at that stage. But it was curious to see that coming through. Uh-huh. She's sort of, Lois is there to meet my needs as a playmate. Um, right. And if she's upset, she might not do that. Well, it seems like you... You know, with a lot of these things, you can't really transcend levels until you've fully experienced the level that you're at. Mm. I mean, it's not like you're going to go skipping levels or something like that. Yeah, I, th- I think I think that's true. I, I love Keegan's framework, and it really has helped me a lot with clients. It's helped me a lot you know, with the developmental coach. It's helped me a lot with my own self-development. It's helped me understand a lot of conflicts that I used to have in um, hypnosis forums. Because interestingly, there's quite a lot of stage two hypnotists out there. Um, I call them the power hypnotists. You know, everything I say will become your reality and they totally believe their own myths about hypnosis unwaveringly. Um, sorry if I've offended anyone listening to this podcast. Uh, they won't who notice. might be a power hypnotist. Yeah, they, they probably they won't, won't notice. Won't. We haven't offended anyone. We haven't lived. Yeah. Um, so, you, you know. Haven't stood for anything. 
it's been it's been hugely valuable for me. And when I first read Keegan's stuff, and I was going, yeah, I'm like a self transforming guy. It's it's obvious, you know, I'm self transforming. Yeah, I get this stuff. And then I kind of reread it and was looking deeper and going, actually, maybe I'm not self transforming. Maybe I'm more like a self authoring level, you know. Then I got more deeply into it and I thought, actually, I've got a lot of that stage three socialized mind stuff going mm -hmm. on. And I, you know, I kind of, my estimation of myself dropped uh, down considerably because I did have a lot of that stage three mm -hmm. stuff mm -hmm. going on. I did have parts of me that wanted to please people because I didn't want them to be upset with me or, you know, um, one of the hallmarks of stage three is often feeling very torn uh, this is the authenticity show right. having difficulties with authenticity because you're trying to be a certain way because this this person holds this set of values and you feel you ought to maybe conform with them because you're not sure if they're the right set of values and then this person holds this set and you're trying to conform with these ones but then these two people show up in the same space at the same time and uh, how am I going to be how am I going to be because how you're going to be if you're going to be grounded in yourself well you have to at least have got to that kind of self-authoring phase so I identified a lot of these stage three traits in myself. And then by helping, by, by identifying them, I think that ultimately has helped me to mostly transcend them. What's that like being the only person in this room to feel that way, James? <sighs> I have no idea. Gosh, that must be really strange to have that experience point, point all by yourself with, with yeah. neither of us having that experience. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, I, I, I welcome the opportunity to be here with, with uh, enlightened people like yes. your good selves. Indeed. No, it's funny because... It's quite a burden. Yeah. As soon as you started talking about, um, uh, you know, the idea of, you know, checking with this and checking with that to see, you know, which one's right. And I instantly resonated with that yeah. completely. And, and I, could, I could sense the, you know, the times in which that's been a uh, crippling mm experience for me in a sense mm. you know like where it creates the feeling of, of not being able to do something because i'm being pulled in these directions so mm. i totally <laughs> relate to that yeah, yeah. it's interesting I, I, I also think that like stages of development like like what you're describing um you could certainly go through those stages in one aspect of your life yeah. and be com completely way down right, on the ladder sure. and you know like like professionally you might be you know further along for and then sure. within your relationships you're you're you know you're a a caveman, you know. I, I think that was right. what was going on for me. Is like yeah. in in my professional work, I was quite self-authoring, um, but in my social life, I was still quite stage three socialized. You know, feeling a lot of these these tugs. So that totally makes sense mm. to me that there's mm -hmm. a contextual element to it. Yeah, as yeah. well. Yeah, or with certain people, you know, mm -hmm. new, new group of people come in and suddenly, oh my gosh, I'm like this different group of people come in, oh, I'm self-actualized, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 you know, you're, you're really neither if you're, 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 and you're both if you're changing depending on what the situation is and who the people are. You yeah. Know, and, Plus it's yeah. that whole idea that, that, you know, you aren't even that you're, you're just um, observing that that's what's going on in that situation. Yeah. Like the, the whole MBTI, the Myers-Briggs, uh, you know, the, the idea that was, it was never really meant to be, a, a personality label it was it was meant to to look at what functions were happening at different stages and people can be running uh you know perceiver 
mode or judger mode at different times in different situations and with different people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know I noticed that in myself that I can be extremely perceivery to use a word, you know, to, mm-hmm. to run the perceiver mode a lot. But when I'm around other perceivers, my judgment, my uh, judger personality comes out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. A lot. So it's not like a fixed thing. Yeah. You, you guys know the old story of the, uh, the emperor who dreamed he was a butterfly. You know that story. Tell it. So, so the emperor um, had a dream that he was a butterfly. And it was so vivid and so real. When he mm. woke up, he was really torn. And so he found uh, some kind of you know, wise man and shared his experience. And he asked the wise man, you know, am I an emperor who dreamed he was a butterfly? Or am I really a butterfly who dreamed, right. is now dreaming that he's an emperor? And the wise man said, you're neither. You're the one who witnessed both. Nice. You know, that's yeah. sort of kind of what we talked about earlier. Yeah, yeah and I think this is the thing about like that distinction that I made earlier, arguing about what is or isn't so versus taking charge of your meaning making. Mm. Because, you know, am I the emperor that dreamed I'm a butterfly or am I the butterfly that dreamed I'm an emperor? That's what is or isn't so. We can go to another level and, you know, I can be emperor and I can be butterfly and, and I can, in any given moment, I'm simply experiencing what I'm experiencing being what I'm being. And and I love this, this. I don't know if you know Stephen Walensky's work at all, but there was something as an idea that jumped out at me, which is all trances are identities. Mm. In that whatever trance you're in, that is the totality of who you experience yourself to be in that moment. It becomes the identity. All trances are identities. And on the flip side, all identities are trances. You've got that kind of two-way travel. You know, so butterfly trance, emperor trance. But what is everything else? 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 Butterfly trance, fly trance, emperor trance, trance. Butterfly trance, fly trance, emperor trance, But what is everything else? Another way I heard that put uh, one time, which was interesting, is that all beliefs are limiting beliefs Mm. at some level. Right. And they have to be, because if Mm -hmm. a belief didn't limit, it wouldn't function. Right. Because so far as I'm concerned, the function of a belief is to limit. It's to channel choices down. Otherwise, imagine every moment, every choice that was possible was available to us. Right. We would be... We'd be screwed. We'd Nothing be and everything to, would be happening all at once. Right. Yeah. So we have to limit. We have to. And this is the point about when I talk about trances, traditionally hypnotists talk about depth of trance. I almost never talk about depth of trance. I'm interested in breadth of trance, how much is included and how much is excluded. That's why I like the term reality tunnel as well and often use it interchangeably because you've got the idea of the tunnel and the tunnel heads in a particular direction. Robert Anton Wilson. Yeah. Yeah. 
um, or Tim Leary actually, Tim Leary, origin, yeah, right. originally, right, and, right. and there's there's everything that's outside of the tunnel. So I like this idea. So I often talk about breadth of trance. I will often talk about shape of trance as well. Mm. You know, the shape of the experience. As a hypnotist, I'm there assisting people in reshaping their trances, rather than putting mm. someone into a deep trance. Um, so these, you know, the, these are kind of more interesting things as far as I'm concerned. But the limiting belief, it must limit because we live through trances. Trances are functional. You know, maybe if I go into a state of anxiety, that's a high performance state. Mm. I'm doing anxiety exquisitely, perfectly, you know, and, and, they, and high performance states must limit. They must exclude everything that would take you out of the high performance state. I think it was when I was going to Brazil earlier this year, I got on the plane and, and I never had a problem with fear of flying or anything like that. Never have. That's not a trance that I've ever done. But the, the plane was going along the runway and it's just made these horrible clunking sounds that just didn't sound right at all. And, I, and I, my brain latched onto an idea that perhaps there was something terribly wrong with the plane. And as soon as my brain latched onto that idea, I entered a, a new trance for me, which was one of some anxiety, maybe even fear. But I was able to step back and take a perspective on that enough to go, well, you know, what I'm experiencing right now is a set of ideas that have come into my mind. This is what I'm experiencing. I'm in a trance, a set of ideas. So I used a sort of like John Overdurf attention shifting maneuver and simply asked myself with genuine curiosity, what is everything else that I am that goes beyond this experience? And boom, that opens up the bandwidth. But I also noted a presupposition in there that's not an overt linguistic presupposition, but I was still thinking about myself as a person at that point. I noted in my curiosity, which is now I'm in a very different state from the, the fear state. So I'll kind of chunk to another level with it and ask myself the question, what is everything else that I am that goes beyond the idea of personhood? And in that moment, that question, that was really trippy. Um, I cannot evoke the same trippiness in this moment with myself, but the, you know, what is everything else that I am that goes beyond the idea of personhood? At that moment, it was like, the edges of everything were, were just kind of blown out. And, and I just went into this completely, ah, uh, you know, I don't have, you know, it's, it's the space beyond words again. It's, mm -hmm. you know, uh, it, and, it was... Um, you did that without drugs? Without drugs, yeah. Because this is the thing, you know, what, what do drugs do? They alter trances. But what, right. are, what, are, what do concepts do? They shape trances. And this is where words come in. For me, words and concepts are not the same thing. But every word has a concept attached. It doesn't work if it doesn't have a concept attached. Not every concept has a word attached. But every word has a concept attached. So we can use words as handles on concepts and we can use them to reconceptualize in the moment in a really deep embodied way. So, so literally words, when used in this way, they literally can work like drugs. They shift our state, they shift our attention pattern, they shift our physiology. This is why, so far as I'm concerned, hypnosis works. It exists. It's got nothing to do with sleep deeper, deeper, deeper. Um, and everything to do with how this word 
connects with a particular concept and how that concept shapes this particular trance, this particular experience. This is the heart of hypnosis, not this special altered state called trance. Mm. And it's happening all the time. We swim through an ocean of hypnosis every day. Well, we've been swimming like crazy in this conversation. I mean, I, yeah. I feel like, you know, uh, sitting here with two powerful minds and, and we're psychonauts having a, a journey. Mm. And, and, and the shape of this trance, the breadth of this trance is, is shifting and morphing in, in really interesting ways. I've been in uh, wonderful different altered states uh, cascading one to another um, all throughout this whole authentic conversation mm, you're here, here. Yeah. yeah me too yes. this this is a good time to point out that i once read a buddhist prophecy that a future buddha would find enlightenment through a new type of meditation called trance meditation hmm. that's right i remember you telling me that, that years yeah. ago yeah so well let's chew on that for a while What's next for you? Are there, are there questions that you're itching to know and understand that you could share? I, I mentioned earlier the distinction between alchemy and magic. Mm -hmm. When it comes to the alchemy side, I think I'm quite good. I think I'm pretty good at self-transformation. The whole magic side of things, I've got a lot of ideas around, and I think I'm getting better at it, and I'm increasing my skill with it. But I'm a long way off where I would feel like I have mastery. So that's the side of my life at the moment that I'm putting more into. And a lot of that is to do, it still uses the alchemy because it's like, how, do, how am I shifting my trances? How am I shifting my operating systems? So at the moment, I'm figuring out the trances that best serve me in terms of creating what I want to create in life and in the world. Um, and that's the magic. That's the magic. So, as opposed to the magic we were referring to before, which is performance and mentalism yeah, and all that. So the, yeah, this I, is I'm, more. I'm talking about real magic, right? Now. Real magic. Right. <laughs> Just wanted to clarify that yeah. for the listener. Yeah, I, I do, um, and that's that's something as well that I, I've actually this is the authenticity show. Yeah. Uh, I've crept towards talking about magic in this sense mm -hmm. for a long time because I've been afraid for a long time that if I talked about magic in this sense, people would think that I was a whack job, um, that I'd lost touch with reality and all of these kinds of things. These are, you know, th those were my fears. And so it's taken me a, a, a long time to find the roots of those trances and, and loosen them off so I can be free to actually talk about something which is a significant part of my life. And I've gone around the loop and thought, well, what, you know, what is magic? And there's that definition from Crowley, which I think is the art and science of causing change to occur in the world in accordance with will or something mm -hmm. like that, right. some, similar to that, mm -hmm. which I think is a kind of good definition in some ways. And, it, and it's missing something in other ways for me as well. I also like Alan Moore's definition of yeah. magic, um, which great. is just like 
you bring something into the world that wasn't there before. It's like a simple. It's a maker. Yeah. Meet your maker. Yeah, absolutely. So, right. you know, uh, Alan Moore's pretty cool. For me, magic is the principles of non-linear generative engagement with life. This is the way I define it. <clears throat> so life is chaos. You know, we cannot control it. But there is a way we can dance with that. There's a way we can meet with that, which creates, which generates results from it. And these results are non-linear. And this is a specific thing. There's a quote from Steve Jobs. He said, you cannot connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking back. That's because we backwards rationalize. We put a pattern on it because it's chaos coming in. There are so many variables you have to play with. One of the things about magic for me is it goes beyond the mundane. So it's this, this effect of like, you go, how the hell did that happen? You engaged generatively and things came out of that that surprise you in terms of, of their results. But things mm -hmm. that are good things, things that are wonderful things, things that are inspiring and, and, and cool. So that's, that's the thing. There's a quality to the, the magic for me of engaging with the world in a non-linear way and having these things emerge. So I, I'm, I'm kind of heading in this magic direction. I'm not teaching any stuff that I'm not like putting so workshops together. This is it's something just, you're exploring. Yeah, it, it's something uh, maybe in the future I will teach that, but I won't teach it until um, I've got it reasonably nailed and I'm looking like I'm living this way consistently and producing consistent results mm -hmm. uh, in this way. That point I'll, I'll teach it. Beautiful. Yeah, that's exactly what I was wanting to know. That thank you for the, for sharing that. You're you're welcome. You're yeah. welcome. Um, and people can think I'm crazy if they well, want. Well, you are crazy, because, but uh, we love you anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're crazy, and you're not crazy, and you're yeah. 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 Crazy wisdom <laughs> is the best. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. Life is crazy. Mm. How would people get in touch with you? Find you? Look you up? Um, yeah, there's, there's continue a, the conversation. There's a few choices on that. If people are interested in hypnosis, I would recommend they visit hypnosiswithouttrance.com. That's a good place to go. Uh, people can find out uh, about the coaching and the change work that I do on my jamestrip.co.uk website, uh, which is a pile of junk as a website, really. But you know, nonetheless, you can. You can find out some things on there. It really does need reworking at the moment. Um, and I would certainly invite people, if they are YouTubers, to subscribe to my YouTube channel, which is James Trip Chaos Wave. I would love to have people jump on there. I'm currently hiring some people to do the tech side so I can get a more output on the video. And I can I can concur that the YouTube channel is loaded with really good stuff. I mean, you can learn a lot just by listening and watching the videos. There's a tremendous amount of information that you give out for free. Yes, I do. And I, I, what I really want to do is I want to up that to three videos a week. I've said I'm going to do that before, but what's held me back is that I'm doing all the editing, I'm doing the uploading, I'm doing the... It's just, you know, I want to just shoot the videos, uh, get the mofos up there. So, <laughs> um, so things are changing in that respect. It's been an excellent night, my friends. Very good. Thank, Thank you. you very much indeed. Have a great night. You've been listening to The Authenticity Show with your hosts, Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. Very special thanks to our guest, James Tripp. 
The show is produced by Oliver Alteen. Our theme music is composed by Oliver Alteen. Remember to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And check out our website, authenticityshow.com. Thanks for listening and have an authentic day.